Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. ES Audio. This is the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. I'm Nick Curtis. I'm Nancy Durrant. And I'm Nick Clark. This is what's coming up on the show. For our first review, it's I Wish My Life Were Like a Musical. This is by Alexander S. Bermange, and it's on at the Wilson's Music Hall. For our second review, we'll be discussing Candy at the Park Theatre. This is a play written by Tim Fraser and directed by Nico Rao Pimpare. And for our interview this week, we join Miriam Batty and Katie Posner at Somerset House to talk about their new show, Strategic Love Play. I think it's harder and harder for young people to feel really motivated to kind of make stuff because what is there waiting for them? Welcome back to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. So the main thing that caught my eye this week was a piece in The Stage by David Benedict talking about the reviews of Next to Normal. That's what we reviewed last week, isn't it? Yep, which we said could have been subtitled Mental Illness, the Musical. It's a Tony and Pulitzer Prize winner from Broadway. It's taken 14 years to get here. David Benedict is suggesting that a lot of the, some of the reviews, that the more negative ones, have tended to concentrate on the moral choices that the main character makes with regard to her treatment specifically whether she's going to give up her medication, whether Mm. she's going to have more Mm. electroconvulsive therapy or whether she's going to sort of go cold turkey and tough it out and just see what her bipolar disorder, where it takes her. And he's suggesting that this is the the wrong way to go about approaching a show. If you are making judgment on the content rather than the manner of its expression, that that you're somehow crossing the line as a critic. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not unsympathetic to that Mm. point of view. I sort of feel like you have to be able to make art about anything really yeah. don't you and you have to be able to show people making decisions that mm. you don't necessarily agree with yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, or at least explore the possibility that people might make those decisions I mean otherwise what's the point it's just not it's not it's interesting there's a, yeah interesting. I mean I, I've always felt happiest when I'm talking about aesthetics rather than morals you know mm. or, or ethics I'm much happier in the role of critic where I think it is you, it is your job to judge the aesthetics of a show mm. and the effectiveness of its you know yeah. of its writing and it's yeah. um, you've got to is it successful in what it's setting out to do rather than what you want it to do yeah there's a big spat one time between Charles Spencer critic of the Telegraph and David Hare when David Hare wrote I think it's my 
zinc bed, where he criti- he basically says that the Alcoholics Anonymous 12-step program has become a cult, mm-hmm. almost. And Charlie, who'd been through the 12-step program, thought that this was an immoral position to take. And mm. there, was a, there was briefly a, a real spat about it. I just wanted to read out this quote that David Benedict cites in his piece uh, from Edward Albee, the author of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Uh, when a critic sets himself up as an arbiter of morality, a judge of the matter and not the manner of a work, he is no longer a critic, he is a censor. Mm. Uh, so I think that's, I mean, that's pretty succinctly put. Interesting, yeah, you know. It's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, well, it's fascinating to us because we do it, but, you know, the job of a critic and, like, where you draw the line, I do think you have to be so, you know, you have to remember that the people in these things are not real. Yeah. And mm. I think you should always attempt to fall on the side of what is this trying to do rather than... Yeah. I hate that decision, it's wrong. Like, sure, the decision might be wrong. Mm. Somebody might make a a decision which is cruel or damaging or or completely immoral or whatever within a play. That doesn't mean necessarily that the artwork itself is wrong. Almost never. You know, as long as you're licensing professional critics to go and give an opinion on something, Mm -hmm. they will be influenced with whether they like a play whether they warm to it or not mm. won't it I mean you do try and be as professional and as mm. fair as you possibly can and, and judge something on its merits but some of the time you will just go and see something and think oh, I hate this <laughs> <laughs> yeah speaking of which yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of which more later yeah. <laughs> anyway there anyway. was one nice thing that happened this week which is that theatre tickets for Spirited Away mm. are about to become available which will be incredibly exciting to a lot of people I think there are about 125,000 people signed up up for the ticket release day. Priority is September the 5th, everybody, uh, but general release goes on sale from the 7th. But they are apparently, and you never know quite how many there are in this group, but mm. there are apparently tickets as low as 30 quid. So I think, yeah. I well, think it's at the Coliseum, isn't it? Up. So there'll be plenty of tickets to shift. Uh, uh, that's true. true. Yeah, it's yes, a big old yeah. space. And 30 quid might not sound overly cheap, but this is obviously going to be something fairly spectacular mm. and oh, fairly, yeah. you know, uh, well, we shouldn't we shouldn't prejudge. We'll, mm. we'll tell them whether it's spectacular <laughs> or not in due <laughs> course. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> But I imagine there's going to be quite a lot of money spent on this. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, you know, they'll be having to recoup somewhere, won't they? <laughs> yeah, definitely. And you know what the ENO, something I discovered recently that I shamefully did not know, the ENO actually gives away free tickets for its opera productions to young people. Mm. Like, I thought they were like 25 quid. And oh. you can get 25 quid tickets. But there are also free tickets, like quite a lot of free tickets available for young people's their opera productions, which I think is very good. I think that's very good. Great if that only, their base is still staying in London for, for another a while. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> An unspecified bit. Yeah, okay. Anyway. Well, should we get into our first review? Well, yeah, let's do yeah. that. Which is, I wish my life were like a musical at Wilson's Music Hall. I wish that my life were like a musical That I could go walk Tell me about it. I didn't see it. I actually, <laughs> yeah, well, we sort of, we had a we had a who's seeing what this week and yeah, I got a short straw on this tossed, one. We tossed a coin. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. And <laughs> you week, had a better evening than I did. Straws, I think. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, go I on, tell me about it. So, yes, uh, I Wish My Life Were Like a Musical. It's by Alexander S. Bermange, uh, directed and choreographed by Matthew Parker. Um, and it's just arrived from the Gilded Balloon in Edinburgh. It's its third Edinburgh season. Yeah, load of five-star reviews up there. And, you know, obviously very, very popular. Brings its own fan base. I also really appreciate the use of the subjunctive in the title. I love the really use of like the subjunctive in the title, really yes. Like for, really for grammar fans out there, that's <laughs> if there's an, a, an element of wishing or possibility in the uh, use of the past tense, then it should be were, not was. 
I used to be Thank a sub you. editor. <laughs> did you? <laughs> yes, I, can't I did. Tell. Go on, Nick. Sorry. <laughs> well, no. I mean, it's a, a sort of comedic musical uh, review that basically sets it up as giving you everything you want to know about musical theatre. Super fans, the the people who love it, um, the audiences, the the stars. It had great crits from Tim Rice, Miriam Margulies, Ruthie Henshaw. They all loved it. I bet. Now, Nick, <laughs> uh, we spoke last week about a mirror in which you yeah. decried writers writing about writing. So how about musical performers singing about musicals? Yeah, I'm feeling a bit musicaled out this week. <laughs> so maybe I went to this with a slight sense of humour failure. Um, but um, in some ways, it's a fairly short show. It's 70 minutes. There's about 16 songs that they pack into that. There's no song list, so we don't know what the titles of any yeah. of them are. And some of them sort of meld into one another. But there's approximately 16. So it's fairly yeah. it's fairly song heavy. And I mean, it's, it's, it's sung got, through with it's sung through effectively, much. and it's got it's basically got sort of three things going on in it. There's a, a sort of arc of what you expect from a musical, so a big opening number, some sort of romantic interlude, a big mm. dance routine, and then a finale. Surely there's a ballad. There's got to be a ballad. Uh, there is a ballad, but there's, I suppose yeah, yes. they're, they're sort of they're just sort of hitting the major marks yeah, on the yeah, arc yeah, of yeah, yeah. sort of story of a musical. Uh, wedded into that is the uh, is the arc of sort of performers, you know, from auditioning through to becoming a star, oh. and also the audience um, who are variously badly behaved, bored, uh, or enthusiastic. I personally was a little bit bored. Um, I am fed up with shows that tell you how tough it is to be a musical theatre performer, but also how wonderful. Um, laugh at us, but also love, love, love us. That's what the message of this show seems to me to be. Um, I found it quite witty. It's quite clever. It's accompanied by. Mr. Bermange on the piano yeah. on stage. He does quite a lot of uh, what audiences of a certain age will remember Les Dawson doing, which is deliberately playing wrong notes and you know playing stuff out yeah. of, out of tune, which is and a phenomenally hard thing to do. Yeah. I think it does work, and some of the singers do that as well. You know, they sing songs out of key or out of register or and mm. you know out of time. I just felt it a bit thin, really, and a bit in jokey, and I felt I'd seen it a million times before. Well, I'm going to stand up for it a little bit here because I mean it's essentially a kind of jolly canter through the trials and tribulations of musical theatre fans and performers. I mean, obviously, it talks about how hard it is because that's where the humour lies. Yeah. If it was very earnest and just talking about the greatness of musical theatre, <laughs> I think we could all, you know, pass the sick bags. But this is a very much the drama student who's just come out of drama school and faces a sort of icy panel of yeah. auditioners who don't even look up and send us, send us straight out. There's the Florence Foster Jenkins who can't sing, and I thought that was a very good moment, uh, actually. Uh, the diva, or it goes through all of all of this stuff that you know the, the understudy sadly sitting in the wings. It's seventy minutes. It zips through. It, clearly, it's a very Edinburgh. You see why it's perfect for Edinburgh. Oh, yeah, I mean it's it's perfect for Edinburgh. And I can see why it got five star yeah. reviews up there. I mean mostly from bloggers, I think. Yeah, um, but ooh, uh, ooh. <laughs> but, but also it's it's sort of. It gives you the sense that it knows a lot about its subject, but it skates lightly yeah, over the top. Do, it does skate over the top. I mean, I think, as you say, I think it stood out in Edinburgh because it's very professionally done. Mm. You know, the music is played well. The four strong cast are sort of, as I said, mid-level level troopers in mm. the sort of uh, trenches of musical theatre. Mm -hmm. You know, none of them are big West End stars, yeah. but they've all got good voices. They've all got, you know, yeah. enough um, nows to take the mickey out of themselves. They all know where to stand on stage. It's a slightly static show for a show that is about musicals. There's one dance number which is a bit sort of half-hearted. Well, because they're slagging off dance numbers. They're slagging, musicals, off, well, they're slagging right? off complicated dance <laughs> yeah. numbers by doing a very, very basic dance <laughs> yeah, number, yeah, which yeah. seems to be a slightly bottling the opportunity, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, the songs touch on 
different sort of genres within mm. musical theatre or sometimes evoke different themes. It, 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 songs you'll re- recognise from the big well, It does it very cleverly there, I think, because it'll lead you into what you think is going to be a cover of a West End song, but actually just knocks it to into its own thing. Yeah. So, you know, you'll recognise songs from Les Mis and Wicked and all this, mm-hmm. uh, but it then uses it to its own ends and writes very funny little, you know. It sounds very much like something that really, really knows its audience. Yeah. I mean, who's going to go and see I Wish My Life Were Like a Musical mm. other than people, people who, who wish really, their lives really were. <laughs> like musical theatre? And, and they're going to really like I mean, what was the rest of the audience? There is they a, loved it. Yeah, it was quite, there were quite a lot of older people with quite yeah. a lot of young kids there, so yeah. I think you know, right. there's, there's, uh, there's, you know, there probably is the family musical crowd there. Mm-hmm. There is a song about the super fans, which is quite funny, where mm. all four of the performers come on as a different sort of super fan. And you reading your review, Nick, uh, you outed yourself as knowing one of <laughs> the most good. in-jokey in-jokes ever, which yeah, I missed. There's, the a, there's a woman in that uh, who says that she only ever uses as her password and pin two four six zero one. Which is Jean Valjean's prisoner number. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ashamed to know. I was this. sitting there scratching my head, but next to be portion. fair, there is a song called 24601 in Les Mis, I believe. <laughs> so, you know, it does, and one's seen the film as well as the stage production a couple of times, so it does lodge in your head. Yeah, I think it, I think you're right. It does it does know its audience. Well, um, I think that's all right. Yeah. I think that's allowed. I, and yeah. it actually, it's. Begrudge them the mm. ticket dollar that they're hopefully going to get. And it's, you know, it's, I, I wasn't bored. It took me a while to get into it, but actually, Actually, I thought it then finished rather abruptly. I was yes. like, it's just suddenly ended. And I thought, oh, I could have had a few more numbers actually There's by the also, end. So it's worth saying, you <laughs> should, uh, even if you do wish your life were like a musical, you should be careful what you wish for. Because as uh, Jennifer Caldwell, who sings that song in it, mm. remarks, if your life were like a musical, you could get trampled by buffalo, turned green, crucified, or sung at by Russell Crowe. So, <laughs> yes. it's, not all, it's not all gravy on Beware. the musical train, I think, yes. And actually, yeah. she sings one of the best uh, songs in it, which is The Divas in the House. Which the I Divas in the House, love. which, with, I thought, a nice touch, she has a sort of Norma Desmond yes. turban on. Yes. So, you know, oh, a bit of a and on gurning forward, facial expressions. Yeah, not so, forward and to Sunset uh, Boulevard coming back in. I, I just kept thinking back to I remember seeing, they did Forbidden Broadway on uh, at German Street Theatre about 20 years ago, when there was much less interplay between Broadway and London, so mm. a lot of the jokes didn't work. Mm. But that seemed like sort of twenty times the show that this does. So, uh, <laughs> so I just felt I've seen this done, but you know, before and better. Um, okay. But maybe, as I say, I'm just they, they poke fun at the uh, critics at one stage, Nick. There yeah. was a, <laughs> there's with a, that, <laughs> there is a oh, very serious critic comes on and uh, talks about her love of uh, Beckett, but how secretly she just loves musicals. And yes. Wants to, there's, it's, it's quite a fun song because there's a football fan who's, who does the same and a heavy metal tattooist and they all it sing is, together. It is quite a fun song, but there's a slightly lame joke in there as well as saying, and I'm sure Shakespeare must have seen West Side Story because that's why he wrote Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> right, 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 right. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> We're easily pleased, Mr. Clark. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Listen, I had my glass of wine. I had my wine gums. It was great. Uh, and that's <laughs> It's always a delight to go to Wilton's. It's just such yeah. an amazing venue, isn't it? You know, it's such Beautiful. a such a gorgeous space. I'm so yeah. glad it survived, and I like the way they've left it still yeah. quite yeah. sort of tatty. They've, it's, it's really, really. I think there's a term for it. They call it a state of managed decline, which is what I'm hoping for for my retirement. <laughs> <laughs> but is it what? There's a line about, isn't it? The longest or the oldest still running theatre. I think it may well be. It's the it last. It's very old. It's I the last it's of the, the old musical. It's the only it? functioning musical, isn't it? Unless mm. they're. I can't think of another one that's still going. 
Don't know. But yeah. I'm doing my spring. Right? Yeah. yeah. And I wondered, it was it was full last night. This, yeah. this show's in for a fairly short run. Yeah. Um, and I wondered if it was a local audience. I, actually, last time I went there, I bumped into two people I know who live around the corner who were there just having a drink to get away from their grandchildren. <laughs> <laughs> it has a very nice bar as well. I think I might know who those people are. Anyway. Oh, really? yeah. Okay. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Anyhow, well, it sounds like sounds like a you lot should of go. fun. And well, a lot you, of people will like this. If yeah. you wish, <laughs> if you I mean. wish were like a musical, you will like. I wish were like a musical. <laughs> <laughs> I wish were like a musical. <laughs> Lovers of this sort of thing will love this sort of thing. Excellent. Are you about to burst into song, Meg? <laughs> <laughs> Right, let's go for a quick ad break. And if you've not subscribed to this podcast yet, then this small break would be the perfect opportunity to do so. Coming up afterwards, we're joined by Miriam Batty and Katie Posner for their new show, Strategic Love Play at Soho Theatre. We'll be back after these. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Danny Mays, and you're listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. Welcome back to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. I'm at Somerset House with the writer Miriam Batty and director Katie Posner. Miriam was one of the youngest writers on the fourth series of Succession and has gone on to write on Dead Ringers, starring Rachel Weisz for Prime Video. She's written plays for the Royal Court, the new diorama, and her new one, Strategic Love Play, which was a sellout at the Edinburgh Fringe, is coming to the Soho Theatre from the 6th to the 23rd of September. Katie Posner is an award-winning theatre director and co-artistic director of the touring theatre company Payne's Plough and is directing the show. Miriam and Katie, welcome to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Could you, between you, briefly describe the play? It's one scene between a man and a woman who've met on their phones and they're meeting for the first time. And it is simply a play that is as brutal as the subject matter it is about, which is modern dating. Yeah, and I guess how wild it is that we have these moments with people on the internet and then we sit across them in a pub drinking a pint or two hoping to you know engage in lifelongness together lifelongness that's not even a word no, that's it. a good it's a great right. word though it I've covers the basis all of that ness i feel oh. like that's what the play's about yeah, is all of the ness all of the ness <laughs> yeah i read the play the other day and miriam i fear that your experience of dating has possibly been deeply traumatic deeply traumatic <laughs> it's funny because if you ever ask anybody i would say a, a huge percentage of people will say it has been deeply traumatic which is quite quite funny because i think the idea it's probably supposed to be that it's quite fun and or energising and or enjoyable, but it is not 
I have not found it to be that way. For some reason, it has not battered me down. I am probably the biggest romantic in the world, but you might not believe that, having read or worked on the play. <laughs> looking at me. Oh, no, no, I think you are. <laughs> what you just said, it seems fun, and it should be fun, right? Yeah. But it's exhausting, and yes. I think that is the... Uh, actually, what I love so much about the play is it's 70 minutes of real time with real people having big, knotty mad brilliant conversations and drinking pints throughout and then you know by the time we get to the end of the play you've been on this date and you've kind of tracked through this whole you know mad brilliant conversation that they have and what could you know essentially be their lifelongness of being together <laughs> yeah Lols. what are the worst dates you've ever been on i mean you i mean Old I mean, you've been, lady, yeah, but old married lady, my, but you've done it, you've done it. <laughs> I, went, I went on a date, I once went on a date with a guy who said, would you like a drink? And when I said yes, he said, oh, I've only got, I think I asked for like a Bacardi and Coke, because I thought it was really cool. And then he was like, oh, I've only got a fiver and that'll pay for my pint. And I was like, oh, okay then, just the Coke. Um, and then we sat down and after about 15 minutes, he said, there's a well in the pub that I'd really like to show you. And I was like... Yeah, you're okay, pal. Um, and then he spent ages talking about like the construct of this well. And I was like, what? Where am I? What is happening? And the wildness of it is my mum had set me up with this dude. And so I was like furious that I was on a date with Wellman who wouldn't even buy me a freaking drink. And then he was like at half nine. He went, oh, so uh, yeah, I, I best get you home. I'm like, what era am I living in? Anyway, it was a delight. We, we said goodbye, um, and then I was angry at my mum for a long time after that. I've, this is going to sound really corny. I've never had a bad date. I've only so ever nice. had... As in, a, well, uh, I'm talking first dates, right, because yeah. I have... I am like a... Uh, well, that, that's not strictly true, so occasionally it's been, it's been a little bit difficult, but I generally have always had good dates, because I have a huge... I've got, like, wild expectations and a huge... A huge mm. fucking well to use your word of hope like just lug about with me so I always kind of sit down and, and I always I get I get very I, I have been known to get quite invested and excited about things Aww. early on so yeah I, I generally I would say I've had many dates but they've all been they're always like in at the in the moment can feel like they're spectacular and then it's and then they always goes terribly wrong it doesn't always go terribly wrong no. I shouldn't say that <laughs> sometimes it goes really Katie Payne's Plow, mm-hmm. which is co-producing the show, is that right? Yeah, with Belgrade and Soho and Landmark Theatre. Excellent. It's still mercifully a national portfolio organisation for the Arts Council. And most of your work, Miriam, has been um, <coughs> staged and commissioned by subsidised British theatre companies. Mm-hmm. So I wondered if you could both talk a bit about that, like the importance of those opportunities for emerging writers. You know, new writing and writers are what I've forged most of my career on. Um, it blows my mind that we're at a point where new writing is so risky and specifically... Uh, outside of London where it feels too scary to think of putting on a new play not for any London-centric agenda there but just because we're questioning about what audiences want and it feels frightening and I just go we need new stories new stories tell us about who we are and they shape and evolve and and they give us all this space and this curiosity and and it's amazing and then of course at Payne's Pal that is what we're about we you know, we cherish and we nurture and we love working with new writers. They sit at the heart of everything that we do, everything that we talk about and everything we get excited about. I always think sometimes, I go, oh, there's, there's so many plays that are so excellent. Like, why 
why am I writing this? Like, why am I writing this one? Why am I writing a new one? But I do think that you do, you do need, I think you do need plays that have been written recently. I think you just need recent plays all the time, just like consistently all the time. I think, you know, you know, plays just need to come and be seen and then go and, 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 and sort of be light on their feet. And I, and I think that's why it has to be consistent commissioning, really. I mean, I, I've been so lucky. I mean, I got, I've written, I've written, I mean, some people think that Scenes of Girls was like my first play, but it was probably about my 18th play. But I kind of, I wrote a huge amount of plays before that, but I was taking a lot of theatres in the regions, like particularly uh, Manchester Royal Exchange and Bristol Vic and Theatre Royal Bath. They took a punt on me writing for their community projects, for the young people's theatre companies. And they let me, you know, they gave me a small amount of money that was well not small to me then you know that was that was very significant to me then and gave me the opportunity to kind of cut my teeth and develop but I've you know I have I'm really proud I always feel like when I come to a new project I have this like huge backlog of, of experience because of, of because basically quite a lot of people have taken a punt on me so I always feel like I know I know I know how to write I think I know how to write oh. now I think I am a playwright now after you know this, this decade <laughs> yeah, think, but you know <laughs> so. that's only but that's only come because basically quite a lot of things I've written someone has been waiting for them and, and that's mm. kind of motivated me mm. quite a lot it's about access and exposure isn't it yeah. yeah that's the thing there's been a sort of devaluing of arts subjects in the education system let's say for over the last I don't know what maybe even 10 years what effect do you think that's going to have on the next generation or what do you think it's having on the next generation of young talent that you're seeing coming up behind you? It's a incredibly frightening thing to graft as hard as you have to, as you have to if you want to write a play or yeah. if you want to make a piece of theatre. It's such a huge amount of work. It's a massive undertaking to look down the barrel of that gun and to not know that there's really anyone out there who's going to receive it or who's yeah. going to be interested in reading it or have the time really, or the kind of manpower to be able to read it. I think it's harder and harder for young people to feel really motivated to kind of make stuff because mm. what is there waiting for them? That mm. What's the promise? Yeah. And I think that's, that's just right. really tough. And to be honest, even it, it doesn't, it's not all about, you know, having a career in the art. Sometimes it's just about like the joy and the kind of huge amount of personal learning that comes from doing drama when you're young mm. Mm. and I, I know like I got a huge amount of it out of it that wasn't just about me kind of planning for the future it was it was genuinely my kind of personality was yeah. was born as I started to go to youth theatre and stuff and, and and also did it in education as well. I know there's some great theatres that really do have those you know connections with their local um, young people and communities and they find those ways to bring them in but it does feel it's just getting you know smaller and smaller and it's so squeezed. I was thinking about a writer though and I was thinking well all of us as artists we learn from each experience don't we so every time we put on a play we learn because it's in front of an audience or we learn something I, I know I learn all the time as, mm. as a director I'm like okay cool and, and you get that opportunity to get better and I find it wild that in the arts it's really hard because there isn't like in what other industry like do you go and you don't fly the plane until you've like had that experience or you've got that knowledge or you've had that opportunity to keep testing and keep learning and I think at the moment 
we're at such a point where there is no space for what is, you know, failure. And I say that in inverted commas because I don't know what failure is, because actually all stories are impactful. But it feels so hard because it feels like there is just that pressure to be like, you know, go do your thing and be amazing um, yeah. and have opportunity. And, and, and we know how hard that is and it's impossible. And it comes to money. It just comes down to money. I know, but yeah, it's like, but that's the thing. Like, if you enable like young people whilst they're at school to make yeah and to fail yeah or to try, i mean yeah. fail and it's a strong word but like yeah. to make to try yeah to cut their teeth to work to work some stuff out work out what they are and what they want to say and how it feels to make stuff and how it feels to put yourself out there like that mm-hmm. that's like doing some of the works that you, you know i'm not saying like you know give a commission to a bunch of 16 year olds yeah. i'm not saying that it's like a cost saving strategy in the long run if we want to have like good art yeah. and kind of glorious you know seminal stuff coming out of the uk it, it needs to be available to young people in schools and stuff and, and also you know youth theatres as well but yeah more art in schools and it's it's, it's <laughs> it, it, absolutely undeniably mm. that the reason i am mm. okay as a person yeah it's because so, of it. there's absolutely no question Miriam Casey, thank you so much for being on the Evening Standard Theatre podcast. (laughs) Thank you so much. Uh, Strategic Love Play is coming to the Soho Theatre from the 6th to the 23rd of September. So go. Yes. See you there with a pint. And a date. (laughs) A date, maybe. That was Miriam Batty and Katie Posner speaking to me at Somerset House. After the break, we will review Candy at the Park Theatre. See you in just a sec. 
read your review. <laughs> yeah. It looks like I might have dodged a bullet. Here. I think you did dodge a bullet. Yeah, I think you gave that one a well-advised uh, body swerve, really. <laughs> this is in Park 90, the smaller space at Park Theatre. Like, um, it does what it says on the tin. It, this is the one in Finsbury Park, by the way. It's in, in Finsbury Park, sure. uh, which unfortunately my guest for the evening didn't. Realise I said you want to come to the park theatre and he turned up at Regent's Park, <laughs> which we discovered twenty minutes walk. before. Probably had a very nice walk. time. <laughs> he, probably had a, he had a nice walk through the rose garden. I think and went and went out for dinner. So and a rather better evening than you did. I think, and indeed <laughs> than you did, I believe, Nancy. But we will we will get to that. So yes, this is a one man show written by Tim Fraser, performed by Michael Waller, who is also the producer of it, and it is about a fairly sort of blokey northern young man, um, heterosexual, sort of aggressively heterosexual sexual you might say who falls for his best mate's drag queen persona mm. you know usually I think we'd review something higher profile than this but it's the tail end of the summer and it's there's a bit of a dearth of shows Edinburgh was on I, so yeah. yeah exactly I I don't much like you know it's new writing this is a first time writer but they've done apparently uh, you said in your review Nick about several different versions of this play over yeah. the last five years yeah. and frankly if this is the pinnacle then <laughs> I'm sorry I don't like I, I really don't I'm not I don't love tearing apart new work as I said in my piece I blame Alan Bennett you know, <laughs> in, the, in the same way that David Shrigley has convinced loads of people who can't draw that actually they're brilliant <laughs> artists um, <laughs> Alan Bennett basically the success of Talking Heads in the summer of talking heads which gave apparently ordinary people I know there's no such thing but you know people with with smallish lives um, gave them dignity and drama and it has convinced lots of people that it's very easy to do that in a monologue and it just simply isn't I mean I'm not a huge fan of the monologue form because I think Drama exists on conflict and dialogue and, uh, you know, but when it's done well. But it's storytelling, you know what I mean? Yes, it can yeah, be done yeah. so brilliantly. It can be done brilliantly. So um, Alan Bennett, Peter Barnes, I was a great fan, fan of his uh, his monologues that were, were done under lockdown on television. Conor McPherson started yeah. off writing monologues um, and only wrote The Weir to prove to people that he could do dialogue, which yeah. I thought was, <laughs> was hilarious, really. But equally, there's this whole sort of hinterland of fairly crappy talking heads, small t, small h, yeah. uh, we've got nothing to say. And this is, yeah. I think, an absolute case in point. I found the fact that I was sitting there in an audience watching this happening so embarrassing that I felt sick. Yeah. I hated this. I, the, the visceral mortification that this was happening in front of me was really, really upsetting. And that doesn't that does not happen very often. I'm not exaggerating. I just God I <laughs> sixty minutes of my life I will not get back. It's true. It is slightly more embarrassing because the space is set up like a sort of pub function room. Yeah. So some of you are sat on seats, but there's a sort of stage on the ground level and sort of glittery curtains behind and there are tables, you know, pub tables with individual tubes of, mm. of love heart Oh, sweets. I'm glad to say that, as you hoped, they had stopped doing that by the time I saw it. Ah, uh, right, it because night. lots of people the night I was there did start unwrapping their own candy when the uh, our <laughs> character was talking about mentally unwrapping his version of candy, who is the who is the drag queen who oh, he's yeah. fallen for. We should we should explain a bit about it. I mean, or the bit about the problems with it. My main problem with this was that once you've got this revelation, it doesn't really go anywhere. No. So this ostensibly straight man falls for the female persona of Somebody who he knows is his best mate, you know, mm -hmm. is, the, is the pasty lad he sat next to in school. And the next sort of 53 minutes are taken up with the fact that his mind just can't compute this, can't, I, can't conflate the two. I know, know but it completely squanders it. It completely mm. squanders the premise of him falling for his friend's drag persona in a way that makes it feel like a trick. 
Do you know what I mean? Like you've been lured there under false pretenses. Yeah. Because it, it doesn't explore sexuality or no. sexual fluidity in no. any meaningful way or even at all, really, no. as far no. as I and it's just it's just a slightly titillating way to tell a slightly charmless story of a not very charming, emotionally stunted man. I mean there isn't really much of a story there. You know, once you get behind this sort of central premise all it seems to be telling you is here is a man who doesn't understand his own emotions and who's quite lonely. Mm. I mean, there's an attempt to give him a hinterland of some kind, mm. but it, there's a he has a. I mean, I don't know if you're going to go and see it after this review, then good luck to you. But so sorry about the spoiler, but he has he has a sort of he describes a suicidal moment, and it feels it feels like it's been tacked on to make you sympathetic somehow to sympathise with him because the playwright realises he's coming across as a kind of bloke you might edge away from in a bar. Yeah. He's not someone you want to spend the next 53 minutes with. Yes. Really? He's not no. like super objectionable. He's just not really anything. But the line I wrote on my notes last night on the way home on the tube was the main issue with it is that the writing is piss poor. <laughs> yes. It is really, it, it, every line is a cliche. Every comparison is weak. Every idea is hackneyed. Yeah. Five years of development mm -hmm. and this is what it's got to. It should have been read, given detailed feedback and then the playwright should have been told to go away and write something else. Yeah. It's so flat. There isn't a great line in it. No. And there is, I, I mean, Michael Waller, it seems like a a relatively personable chap, you know, yeah. and so, uh, but there is a great deal of emotional variation in this because he is just basically chatting with the audience all I the know. time. And, and the delivery is maddening. Yeah, and occasionally Everything sort is said of, like this, yeah. as if he's a total simpleton, uh, up and down like that, and it just doesn't vary. But also bids occasionally to sort of give him a bit more backstory and says, you know, I'm smart enough to Google stuff, you know, you yeah, know, and like, oh, thank you, spins hilarious. out a few facts like a pub bore, and you sort of think, well, that doesn't really work. That is it. That is the word. He's like a pub bore. He thinks he's so much more clever and yeah. like witty than he actually is like that's how not the character just the play it's not very good no it's not very good um, I, I feel honour bound to mention that in his programme biography Michael Waller tells us that he is also a respiratory doctor specialising in cystic fibrosis and never have I wanted more to say don't give up your day job no. please you know don't but he's obviously as I say he's producer as well as performer of this he seems to have been with it in all of its iterations I'm mystified as to why you know, yeah I, really I mean I, I, I don't I know what people know. have seen in this story that makes them think yes let me go to all the time and expense and anguish they were developing it through lockdown as well I think of, of putting on a play which well, is not a, not a simple My question thing. about this is actually about the park like yeah. does it have as part of its business model essentially renting out its spaces I don't because know. I can't think of any other reason why this has ended up on the stage, especially no. after five years of development. I don't know the park's business model, but I think it doesn't get any subsidies. Right, so I think yeah. in order to survive, it does. And I think the bit of London it's in and a certain amount of sort of celebrity support, I think it's it's sometimes got attracted good names yeah. to projects that yep. go on there. So there's a slight sort of false sense of a, of a, of a, a coherent artistic policy and a sort of heart to the theatre. Mm -hmm. And I'm not entirely sure it is there. There were some moments, you know when you're kind of like, oh no, I'm not enjoying this. Mm. Oh, no, I'm still not enjoying it. And then you get to the point where you're like, okay, I wonder how long is left. I'm desperate. But you know when you sort of get a bit slightly hysterical at those points? And there was a moment like that where Michael Waller is standing there and he does lots of other voices as well. So he does his mum's voice and he does um, Auntie What's-Her-Face. Yeah, and his sure, annoying I'm mate. I'm not sure she ever speaks. But anyway, and his annoying, his really awful mate, and you know, which is sort of mugging of the first order in almost every case. But 
there's a moment where he describes Candy in her drag persona. That's the name of the drag persona. The friend is called Billy. Uh, speaking and he, and he describes it as a sort of rich, smoky voice. And then he does it into the microphone. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like, I'm Candy. <laughs> I swear, I nearly lost it. It was the most <laughs> sinister thing I've ever heard. It was like from Scream. Hello, Sydney. Sinister and alarming. And I really, and everybody just, there was just absolute deathly silence. And I just thought, I can't bear this. I just, I don't understand why this is happening to me. It was so funny. <laughs> it was just, he'd sort of like built it up as this like really sexy moment. And then it was just like being in a horror film. It was I wondered at one point. I wondered whether there was something deeper going on. You know, the, the fact why have the two main male characters called Will and Billy? You know, from know, the same no, root, from the same word. But it wasn't are, a thing. Are they the same Sorry, person? Made me laugh so much. <laughs> I got mascara in my eye. <laughs> Carry if, on. If you think you're going to laugh that much at it, you're, you're really. No, you're really not. <laughs> this is there's no. a lot of hindsight this, at work. I think, here. Is, I think this is a PTSD. Working <laughs> actually, Let it go. Let it go. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! Uh, anyway, it's sort of yeah, yeah. I mean, it's sort of sad. This much thought has been expended on something that is really, really, really not worth it. No, I, re- I just and God, I, I really hope they weren't listening. Actually, it's just it's such a horrible thing to to hear. That I just I I want that writer to just kind of put this one aside, and you know, obviously try again, always try again, because you know, it's writing is all about trying again as much as mm. it's like that's that's kind of like at least 60% of writing I think but this needs to be put to one side and never looked at again yeah so Alan Bennett if you're listening I hope you're proud of yourself <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think that's it for the Evening Standard Theatre podcast. (laughs) I think this week, yeah. Check out all our other episodes below, which include interviews with the likes of Lenny Henry, Tim Minchin and Frankie Bridge, plus many more. And you can find all our latest reviews at standard.co.uk. That's linked below. Don't forget to subscribe to the Evening Standard Theatre podcast so you never miss us. Thanks to our producer, Rachel Abbott, and we'll see you next Sunday. (laughs) 